So let me also throw in my happy Mother's Day. Uh, my my mom does watch Northbrook from Michigan, so happy Mother's Day from your favorite son. Uh, (laughs) There is a phrase that is toxic to some people, even deadly. This phrase has the potential to send some of us into a tailspin, taking days, if not months, away from our life. It can rob us of our joy, ruin vacations, and make us miserable to be around. The phrase is, what if? I don't need to bore you with numbers and statistics. What I can tell you with certainty is that anxiety, worry, and depression are exponentially on the rise in our country. I've lost track of the conversations I've had recently that begin something like this. Never in my whole life have I ever struggled with anxiety or depression, but out of nowhere, I started feeling anxious, even having panic attacks. I don't speak about this from a static or distant place. I grew up in western New York, and I had a great childhood, really. I mean, my parents were fantastic. Um, I was a joyful kid, happy. Right up until my teenage years, there was some angst there. My parents referred to them as the dark years, and they were challenging. My mom deserves to be christened a saint. But for the most part, I was... I was a good, happy kid. But then in 1994, I was a freshman in college. I was 18 years old. I was walking through a Meyer grocery store in Brighton, Michigan, and I'll never forget that day. I was right in front of the pharmacy. And out of nowhere, I had what would later be described to me as a panic attack. I didn't know what that was. I'd never heard of it. Um, Never suffered from any of those things before. Now, at the time, I'd recently become a Christian, and while I'm grateful that we are talking about these things today, at that time, in the early 90s, no one really that I knew in the Christian world was talking about this. It was a stigma, and the advice I got was, oh, just pray, just read the Bible, you'll be fine. I was eventually diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. Now, I wish I, I could tell you that, yeah, that was in the past, you know, the Lord has healed me, it's good, and he can heal you too, and it's good, but I didn't have it, I, I have it. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I hate it. I have prayed and fasted and begged God. I have been anointed with oil. I've been prayed by the elders of the church, and yet there it is. I have had people tell me dismissively, oh, it's, it's just all in your mind. Five or six years ago, I had pneumonia, and no one said, oh, don't worry about it, it's just in your lungs. <laughs> of course it was in my lungs, and I went to the doctor and they treated me. <laughs> the Bible, ironically, is not dismissive at all. 
when it comes to the challenges of the mind. I think it's time to stop having theologically thin discussions around anxiety and depression and all those things that play games with our mind. I want to turn today first to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is giving a sermon. It's his most famous of sermons. We refer to it now as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus in this sermon is speaking about life in the kingdom of God, what it means to be a disciple and disciple and follower of Christ. And towards the end of chapter 6, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes and see how the flowers of the field grow, yet they do not labor or spin? Yet I tell you, that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added, all these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's a strain and a pressure here, because what do you do when faith and reality collide. Because there's like a tension here, a tension that it seems as though the Bible itself does not solve, and I don't know that we're going to solve it today either. And, and, and people like me read passages like this, and then we get anxious about being anxious, because Jesus said, don't be anxious, which causes more anxiety. So what do you do? What, what, what do you do? Now in this passage, Jesus is speaking to the ideal. He's speaking about the kingdom of God, but also knowing we're still on this side of heaven. Jesus even promised in this world you're going to have trouble. Jesus is talking about trust. And so here's where I want to go. I want to, I want to, want to go back to the Old Testament to begin with and look at the greatest anxieties of the greatest king that ever lived and what we can learn theologically and what we can do practically. And then I want to offer two small steps forward. But if we go back in time to the Old Testament, to the greatest king that ever lived, his name was David. He was called the beloved of God. He was the one after God's own heart. He was chosen as king to replace Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. But Saul lost his way and the Lord said, you have, you have lost your ability to rule. I'm going to place David on the throne. And so David becomes king of Israel. 
And the Psalms, which most of which were written by David, if not all of them, give us a very, 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 very clear picture of King David's inner life. And in this, we see some of his suffering, some of his worries and his anxieties. And Psalm 142, King David writes, I have no refuge. No one cares for me. Psalm 13, King David writes, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Day after day, after day, I have sorrow in my heart. Psalm 41, King David writes in verse 4, have mercy on me, Lord, and heal me, for I have sinned against you. When we make our way through the Psalms, what we notice is that there are several types of anxiety and worry and depression that King David suffered. Uh, the first one really was not bad at all. It was actually a God-given emotion for our benefit. Because not all anxiety is bad. Some of it we actually need. We were designed to have it. Psalm 142, King David writes, I cried aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way in the path where I walk. People have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge and no one cares for my life. Now see, in this this passage, King David was literally running for his life from Saul, who was trying to kill him because Saul did not want David to take his place on the throne. So there was this this real fear that was a response to a real threat. It was the fight or flight response that King David was experiencing. We all have that and we all need that. When my daughter Hannah was about three years old, we were, in va- we were on vacation in Florida. And I decided to have a father-daughter moment, so I put her on my shoulder. And we started to walk on the golf cart path of the golf cart by our house and we're walking and just having this time and she's up there and it's sunny and 80 degrees and just like here right and it's just incredible and we're walking along the path and we are about to come around to bend there's a big bush in the way so I can't see what's around the corner and I walk on around the corner with my three-year-old on my shoulders and I find myself about four feet away from a rather large alligator which are everywhere in Florida. And I stopped and looked at it, and I was, well, I was a little anxious. (laughs) The fight or flight kicked in, the alligator made its kind of noise, and I just backed away slowly. Hannah's up there freaking out, and I just backed away slowly. So now, whenever I come around unsuspecting bends in Florida, I'm a little more cautious. That's designed for our benefit. There's a second kind of anxiety that King David suffered, and it was anxiety that was from the consequences of his own poor behavior. Psalm 41, verse 4, he writes, Have mercy on me, Lord, and heal me, for I have sinned against you. This psalm was written after King David had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. The scriptures tell us that one evening, King David was out on his roof in the evening, walking along in the cool of the day, and his armies were on the battlefield where he should have been, but he stayed back for some reason. And as he's 
Walking along the roof, he sees a young woman bathing. And King David likes what he sees. And so he inquires about the woman, finds out she's married, but that doesn't stop him and he has her, has her for a sleepover. And she gets pregnant. Now David's in trouble because he has the potential to get caught in the anxiety, I suppose, that he experienced knowing that, what do I do now? So he calls her husband, who is one of his commanders in the army, to come home. So hopefully he'll sleep with her and people will think the baby's his and cover it all up and it'll be good, but he refuses. And so David has plan B and sends him out to the front lines where he knows he will be killed. And he says, put him out in the front and everyone else pull back. And so essentially he has him murdered. But then he is confronted by Nathan the prophet and said, I know what you did, you're the man. And there's this anxiety that you see in the Psalms that he writes that are the result of his own poor behavior. I mean, if you, if you cheat on your wife or your husband or if you are abusive and you lose everything, I suppose there's some anxiety that comes with that. If you're doing something illegal, there's probably some anxiety that you might get caught. If you've got a problem with gambling and you lose all your money and you can't pay your bills, there's probably some anxiety that's going to happen. If you're lazy at work and there's rumor that you're going to be fired, there's maybe some anxiety that comes with that, but that type of anxiety comes as the result of our own poor choices. There's a third type in the Psalms. Is This is where I want to spend most of the time Today, and the third type can be described as a disordered psychological and physiological response. Psalm 13, King David writes, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. If I were to go to my doctor and say, and say I, I have sorrow in my heart day after day after day after day after day, they would probably say you might be clinically depressed. A physician actually studied all of the passages and sayings of King David and suggested that King David did in fact struggle with both anxiety and depression. And this disordered physiological response is where we're currently seeing an exponential rise in our world. There's a, there's a condition that you may notice if you go to the zoo, particularly amongst lions, called zoocosis. Maybe you've gone to the zoo and you've noticed that lions sometimes kind of pace back and forth. You ever seen a lion at the zoo just kind of pacing back and forth? It's actually not normal behavior for a lion. And so zoologists have called this condition zoocosis. The lion is pacing because, because the lion intrinsically knows that something is not quite right. Though his habitat looks kind of like the natural habitat he should be in, he knows that, that something is off, something is not quite right. I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's a sense of zoocosis that plagues us all when we look at the world that we've created and the way we do life, that something is not quite right. And for many, it's causing anxiety and depression. 
And I can tell you it's not a lack of discipline. We don't have it because we just need to try harder. I had a person come to my office once and say, if I just tried harder, it would go away. It's certainly not laziness. I don't believe it's a moral issue. It's not a lack of faith. It's certainly not failure. I believe in part it's that we've created sociological expectations and when those are not met, we start to disintegrate. We also have this exponential rise in our ability to compare our lives to others and when we don't think we quite measure up. Add to that uncertainty. And while we do experience incredible freedom in the world that we live in, freedom often resolves, freedom may resolve the fear and anxiety associated with oppression and persecution, but it increases the fear of personal failure, which is why Sorgen Kierkegaard called anxiety the dizziness of freedom, because with freedom comes more choices, which means more opportunities to get it wrong and fail. We create definitions of success that we cannot attain. We walk into the grocery store and see magazine covers with pictures of people that do not look quite like this. And we think I'm failing somehow. We look for instant solutions to complex problems and we have access to one tragedy after another, after another, after another. See, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We got our news one of two ways, and many of you know this. Like the news, we could buy the newspaper, either the daily edition or the weekend edition, or we could wait for the evening news. And we didn't have cable, we had like five channels. And that was how we got all the news of the day. But now, the moment something happens, I get a notification on my phone. Something blew up, someone got shot, some, some, And it's like, ding, ding, ding. It's always going off. I've always got access to all the tragedies of the world. It's no wonder we're anxious. Throw in physiological issues like a chemical imbalance and trauma, and we have created a world that we are not designed by God to live in. Fear has become an instrument of profitability, If you're over the age of 22, 25, you you remember Y2K. Remember, the world was going to end. And so there were hundreds of companies, many of whom were Christian, who were on the forefront of selling prepackaged food and generators. And you better stock up. Because if you don't, the world's going to end and you're going to starve to death. I had a family in my last church that was so afraid of Y2K, he quit his job, sold everything, and they moved to a bunker in Montana. Now there are thousands of people that have MREs sitting in their basement, but they've never been in the military. And the media knows that fear sells. That's why they do everything they can to keep you angry or afraid. It's why articles are entitled the way they are, even if they don't have anything to do with the article, they just want you to click, because every time you click, somebody's making money. The entertainment industry knows this. Stephen King once wrote, I like to scare people, and people like to be scared. 
I don't. I don't like to be scared. And it starts when we're, we're kids. There's a children's book. This is how the children's book starts. There's a children's story from Germany. No one in the family ever went near the attic. Like if you got a children's book and that's how it starts, throw it away and pick up the Berenstein Bears or something. I... No one in the family ever went near the attic. They hoped the eerie sound up there were made by branches scraping against the house, but no one took any chances. And that was wise, for up in the attic, an evil demoness awaited them. <laughs> no wonder kids are having nightmares. In religion, no fear, is, fear works. We threaten people with hell. In the 70s, a film was released called A Thief in the Night which I watched, freaked me out. I, I, I had nightmares for months that I was going to miss the rapture and I was be left behind. And We teach creepy prayers to our kids. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Like that prayer is so creepy. Metallica included it in their song, Enter Sandman. Now, you know if Metallica's putting your prayers in their songs, it's probably not for children. (laughs) And so millions are walking around with existential dread, and that classic philosopher, Charlie Brown, once said, I have a new philosophy. I now only dread one day at a time. But in the midst of all of this, the gospel makes a difference. Jesus makes a difference. When Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full, he meant it. Not a life free from trouble, but life abundantly nonetheless. And while I can say, yeah, listen, I... I do, I struggle with anxiety and I struggle with OCD. And yet at the same time, Jesus has made a difference in my life. Jesus has transformed me. Jesus has given me an unexplainable peace in the midst of my challenges and issues. And if you don't believe me theoretically, believe me statistically. Harvard University is in the midst of a study called the Human Flourishing Project. And what they're discovering is that children who were raised in church were protected, were better protected from depression, substance abuse, and risky behavior. The children who were brought to church are 12% lower in their depression rates. They report higher levels of happiness by 18%. And children who are in church are 47% higher to have a sense of purpose and meaning in life. Listen, the gospel matters. The promises of Jesus are true. He promised life to the full, not perfection, not free of suffering. He promised life. Now, there's some challenges that we have. In the book, Running Scared, Edward Welch mentioned some of these challenges that we're up against. So whether you suffer from some of these things I've talked about, or if you don't, and you say, I just don't know, I just don't get it, it's all in your head, you probably know someone who does. And the challenges that we face is that, first of all, is worriers tend to live everywhere but the present. Those that are anxious are visionaries, minus the optimism. Those that are anxious tend to live in the past or the future. 
That's why our favorite phrase is, what if? So we have fear. Fear that something will happen to us or our kids. We fear how we will die. We fear debilitating disease. We fear about what happens uh, after death. We fear being forgotten or being judged. Or we fear about having a meaningless life. We, we fear about being unloved. Or we feel about being in love but not being loved back. We fear what might happen if we lose our figure or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our hair or our youth or our money or our mind or our job or our spouse or our health or our hobbies, our purpose or our faith. What makes it harder is that worriers tend to be immune to reason and logic. Because when someone struggles with disordered anxiety, logic will not win them over. Like when you consider King David, he said, God, why did you abandon me? Now the truth is God doesn't abandon everyone. The scripture is very clear about that. But see, facts don't work on emotions because emotions don't care about facts. See, in the end, worry is, in many ways, misdirected love because it's actually fear about losing something that we do love. It's trying to manage our world apart from God. So what do we do? Let me offer a couple of small steps forward. First, guard your mind. Proverbs chapter 4 Verse 23, above all else, guard your mind, guard your heart. The heart and the mind were synonymous in Hebrew thought. Above all else, guard your heart, your mind, for everything you do flows from it. Well, I can't always choose physiologically what happens to me. I can choose what I expose myself to. There are things that I have to do to guard my mind. There are things I cannot expose myself to. Like I, I have, listen, I, I have just this crazy medical anxiety. So I try to stay away from WebMD. I actually failed at that last week, but don't do that. I, I have an issue with comparing myself to others, so I try to, I really limit how much time I go on social media because I don't, I don't need that. There are relationships I've had to end because they were not good for my mind and my heart. If you're going to guard your mind, don't believe everything that you think because not everything you think is true. See, when I live with worry, anxiety and worry is simply an attempt to carry the burden of a future which yet does not exist. But telling someone, don't worry, doesn't really work. There's a thing called the the thought suppression paradox, and it works like this. If I tell you, don't think about pink elephants, what you're now thinking about is pink elephants. So you can't win an argument with worry, but what you can do is name it. You can't say, oh, I know what this is. I know what this is. You're probably going to be with me today, but you're not going to dictate or rule today. Notice it. Look at First Peter. We're challenged to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. That word cast doesn't mean casting like fishing. It means like to thrust. Thrust all your anxieties on him. And as I do that, change the way that I think. The book of Philippians chapter 4 
The Apostle Paul writes, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about these things. So where does the focus of our attention go? We can, we can choose what we think about. And it becomes easier when I nourish my mind with things that are healthy. I was, <clears throat> was out of town last week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I was in San Diego, and so I was in the San Diego airport in the evening waiting for a plane, and I was hungry because I didn't, didn't have dinner. And I saw this barbecue place, and I walked up, and I was looking at the menu, and they had this thing called loaded fries. It was French fries and cheese and brisket and burnt ends all piled on top and barbecue sauce and onions. And I thought, oh, yes, Lord. Yeah, that's... Then I saw a guy order it and they came out and I'm like, yes. But I also remembered that that my recent physical, my doctor said I need to lose 10, probably 15 pounds. And I thought, well, I'll start tomorrow, right? Because I, I, they look so good. You're laughing because you've done it, right? But next door, there was an Asian place, and they had these vegetable roll things, and I'm like, I shouldn't choose that. So I'm not embellishing. I stood in front of that menu like this for like 10 minutes, arguing with myself what I should do. Well, ironically, I I did win, and I chose the, the healthier vegetable roll thing, which I suppose I probably felt better about it later. But if I'm going to be healthy, I, I got to watch what goes in, right? So I, if I nourish my mind, when I choose to meditatively read the scripture, I'm nourishing my mind. There's a whole bunch of research that's coming out right now that says people that read the Bible are much more likely to be happy and peaceful than those that don't. If you read it four times a week was the actual study. When I have life-giving conversations with with good people, like... There's something nourishing about that. There's something about spending time silently in prayer that does something for the soul. There's also something about the healing power of God's creation, just being out in it. Do you realize that when you spend time in nature, something happens to you in a positive way? I think God designed it that way. Because if I'm not nourishing my mind and I'm just putting junk in and poison, well, I'm not reaching for the ideal. And the ideal is Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about your life. And don't worry about tomorrow, for today has enough of its own. I mean, that's, what, that's what Jesus desires. No, not in perfection. But on this side of heaven, there is a possibility to live with a profound sense of of peace, even in the midst of every struggle, because the gospel makes a difference. Jesus makes a difference. Jesus can transform it. Maybe not take it, but certainly transform it. I'm going to ask our worship team to come, and I want to end with a prayer that are the words of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand. 
And as you stand, I also, I'm just going to ask you, if you're, if you're comfortable, just to, to open your hands like this. This is kind of a, a posture of receiving. So I want you to just kind of open your, your hands, like, open your hands like I'm offering you free Super Bowl tickets, or like I'm offering you a free, all expense paid vacation to somewhere warm that's sunny. Jesus, speaking in John chapter 14. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Amen. Amen.